Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Claudia Flores, who is a clinical professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School and the director of the Global Human Rights Clinic. Her research and advocacy focuses on issues of inequality and failures of good governance and rule of law. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, we want to talk about your recent paper, Global Impunity how police laws and policies in the world's wealthiest countries fail international human rights standards. Um, so before we get the details of this, uh, what, what do you mean by international human rights standards? Sure. So um, the international human rights standards are actually pulled from uh, a number of international treaties and agreements. Uh, so countries have signed on to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. That's probably the one that most Americans are uh, are familiar with, um, the Convention Against Torture. And those treaties have requirements that states have to abide by. So in addition to those requirements over time, countries have also reached certain agreements and standards in other forms. Uh, and there's three primary kind of instruments that uh, the standards in the report that we wrote rely on. One is the UN Code of Conduct for our law enforcement officials. Another is the UN Basic Principles on the Use of Force and Firearms by Law Enforcement. And then the third is actually a report that was put out by uh, the special expert um, on extrajudicial killings, which is a UN expert, uh, in which he kind of set standards and investigated what good use of force practice would look like uh, for uh, a police department. So we essentially took those three instruments, the international human rights treaties, and then we um, we extracted the principles that we used in the report. So the, the um, law enforcing personnel, officials around the world, um, there are so many different cultures, there's so many different uh, types of people, 
So do we really have standardization across that from a UN perspective? Yeah, well, it's it's not an easy thing to do, but you know, the job of law enforcement in any state is always the same, right? It's to uh, preserve order, allow society to function, uh, to protect rights of the citizen. So there's always this balance between uh, ensuring that uh, the state is keeping order, but that also citizens have their rights and their freedom, you know, according to whatever constitution uh, the state is functioning under. And, you know, as as you probably know, most constitutions at this point are very standardized. You know, freedom of expression is in every constitution in the world, uh, freedom of assembly. Uh, so basic rights are generally standardized. So really the job of the police is pretty much the same. Now, of course, there are many different cultures and you find a lot of variation. But what we were looking at really was just at the basic level, were these use of force policies meeting these basic standards, understanding that there would be a lot of variation? And even in infrastructure, there's a lot of variation. In some countries, the police are organized at the at the national level, in some at the city level. Uh, so this was just, are there basic standards that states are complying with and that they are being transparent about? Right. Yeah, and uh, because it's a UN charter, there is, I guess there is no enforcement um, of of those things, right, um, from a state perspective? So enforcement at the international level is very complicated. Uh, there are the treaties that, uh, that countries ratify, and those treaties have enforcement mechanisms. Um, there are, you know, they can sanction each other. There's even the potential for use of force in certain contexts uh, where there is treaty obligations, if the Security Council calls it or if the UN community of states decides. Uh, you, they can also kick countries out. Uh, of of the treaty community. Uh, so there are enforcement mechanisms. That's not to say that they work very well. There are some states that are very compliant and there are other states like the United States that kind of picks and chooses when it wants to comply. Uh, but that's why we call them standards because what we were looking at were agreed upon standards uh, that uh, that states had discussed, right? And, and, and that were supposed to reflect the human rights principles that everyone generally holds to be true. Uh, but yes, enforcement is often complicated at the global level because of state sovereignty. Yeah, so there's a set of sort of foundational principles that appear pretty logical, pretty obvious, I would imagine, for most humans, except perhaps politicians. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, but we have had some severe problems in the U.S. last few years, right? And so, so if you take this uh, sort of a framework um, I can't quite remember. You 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 have some way to rate um, um, countries and cities and so on, right? So so how, how do you go about doing that? Yeah. So let me first explain the limits of the study because uh, in in publishing, you know, we published two reports. One was based on the United States uh, use of force policies in the twenty largest cities in the U.S., and then the second report was about the twenty nine wealthiest countries in the world uh, and whether or not they complied with these standards. And we actually. In after the publication of our U.S. report, were contacted by many state uh, members of state senates, you know, that wanted our advice and sort of assistance. And there were also a number of cities that wanted to take credit for being high on this ranking. So I always really try to be very clear about what the study says. Um, so what the study looks at is really just the language and the text of use of force policies. It doesn't tell you whether or not a police department is a good police department. Uh, if you recall in uh, the US-based study, Chicago and Los Angeles were ranked very high because they have 
very nice looking policies. Now, of course, both of those police departments have been under a lot of criticism because of the violence of those police departments, which is probably why they have really nice looking policies. Whether or not the city takes the policy seriously, whether or not they properly train their officers, whether or not there's really an infrastructure to ensure that policies are followed is outside the scope of what we were looking at. So really, this is about the text. The idea is that at the basic level, the language of what police officers are told needs to reflect these human rights standards, right? Now, after that, there's a lot of work to do. So the grading mechanism uh, applies these four principles, which, as you said, seems so obvious, legality, necessity, proportionality, and accountability. But the principles have meat and they require certain things. And I'll give you one example where a lot of cities actually failed. Um, necessity requires that a police officer only use force proportional force uh, in a way that is absolutely necessary. So if there's another option that doesn't require using deadly force and potentially taking a human life, then the officer can't use it. There are a number of cities that allow police officers to shoot at someone running away. So they're not posing a threat. But if the police officer has a reason to believe that they've committed a crime, the police officer can take their life. And that's a clear violation of the necessity principle. Yeah, so that is that's quite obvious. You know what? What I sometimes struggle with is humans are not very good in decision making under stress and under a lot of uncertainty, right? Yeah. So, so when we put this um, um, professionals uh, in a situation like that, uh, it's really difficult to assess, right? Um, there's a lot of variations there. Um, but going back to Chicago and Los Angeles, as you mentioned, I guess you have to start with, do we really understand the basic principles? Um, execution could be could be quite varied, but if you don't even have the basic principles in place, we can't go anywhere, right? Yeah, that, that's that's absolutely right. So like I said, you know, this is, we really thought this is just the floor of what you know, cities and, and countries should be doing. Uh, and we were very surprised to find that even at the floor, everyone failed in one measure or another. And you're right, humans are complicated. And that's exactly why, you know, the the law enforcement in every country has the power to kill. You know, it is the, the sort of most significant power that we give a state agency and cabining the discretion of police officers so that they know when they can and can't use force is an incredibly important state function. Uh, and studies demonstrate that the influence that goes into whether or not a state, whether or not a police officer uses their weapon, it's incredibly complicated. You know, it has to do with the police officer's mood, with uh, how the suspect is related to the police officer, the gender, the race, uh, the experience of the police officer. So all of those factors are true on the ground but it's up to the state to figure out how to actually cabinet in a way that's proper. Uh, so going back to the grading system um, that you have, so you have some points assigned to these four attributes, right? Legality, uh, what are the four attributes again? Proportionality, so accountability. And necessity, yeah. And necessity. So certain points assigned, and again, as you mentioned, you are looking at what is what is in the books, not really about execution, what's in the books. And so when you when you rate or grade um, countries and cities, I found this list really, really interesting. So, 
So New York, as you mentioned, uh, and the United States is on top. I, I, I imagine higher grades are better, right? That's right. Okay, so New York and U.S. has 72, number one, and Riyadh in Saudi Arabia has zero. Yes. <laughs> and Paris, <then laughs> France has three, uh, and Mumbai, India has five. So Mumbai, Paris, and Riyadh are sort of the, the bottom of the table. Yeah. Um, could you talk a bit about them? I mean, they, they seem to be really standing out from the crowd. Yeah. Yeah, so, so what we found, you know, at the bottom essentially Riyadh had didn't satisfy any of the principles. So there was no account meaningful accountability mechanism. And under these standards, meaningful accountability means that every time a police officer fires a gun, that there needs to be some report to an external body, right? Because a death could have happened even if the police officer happens to miss, um, but that there needs to be some system of accountability. So uh, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these countries, or they're actually cities within the countries failed on accountability because uh, I believe if I remember correctly in France, there was only a report to an internal body and it was only if death resulted from the police officer firing. So these are, these are the kinds of, the kinds of failures that we saw. Also, sometimes you had a state that uh, allowed for lethal force to be used in defense of property, for example. So that's another area in which they would have failed these basic standards. So India, France, uh, Italy also uh, didn't do well. Now, again, this doesn't mean that you would find more uses of lethal force in those states than you might in the United States, for example. In fact, I know that that's not true. You do find more uses of lethal force in New York, possibly than in France. Uh, but the law and the policies in France didn't provide any protections and didn't provide any clarity. Yeah, that's really interesting. So there's also a quantity issue here. Um, you know, so I grew up in India and um, I don't know what the situation is now, uh, but when I was growing up, um, I never saw a gun. Guns were not prevalent at all in any, any modality. Uh, and I think it is still, if you look at the quantity of firing um, a, a, a weapon, I think it is going to be quite low from a frequency perspective. And so is it because, and I don't know about France, France is a really interesting case. Is it because, because the frequency is low, they don't really focus on it? Is that one of the reasons? That absolutely could be the case. Uh, you know, we noticed that a lot of these laws and policies uh, in certain countries were really outdated uh, or they there had been no effort to really systematize them. Uh, you know, I think that that the the concern there is you might have a culture in a certain country where guns are not a big part of the culture. Right. Like, you know, as, as you're describing in India. But what happens if that changes? Then you have no legal basis and you have no legal protections. You might have some police departments that are really responsible, you know, and, and, and that's great. But what happens when you have a police department that doesn't have good management or that isn't uh, that it, where training isn't effective? The citizens of that country have no protections if there are no policies that are guiding uh, law enforcement. And so, uh, you know, Norway, for example, Belgium, Sweden, these are all places I think that people think of as probably having responsible law enforcement practices, uh, but they don't have laws and policies on the books that reflect that. And so this is really a question of whether or not a law and a policy within a state should provide the protections that could be needed. Mm. 
um, I don't know anything about this, Claudia, but I was thinking um, there could be some sort of a per capita crime index that you can, you know, juxtapose to it. And so suppose we multiply per capita index with the grade, there should be a number coming out, right? That may have some relevance because I'm looking at the top of the table, I see United States, Mexico, Argentina, Nigeria. These are not countries we believe crime is low. I don't know much about Argentina, mm. but other three at least. And you know, you see uh, Italy, India, France, and so on at the bottom. I don't know per capita crime is is that high in those in those uh, countries. So I wonder if there is some sort of a, a normalization of the grade that might be needed. Yeah, I mean, I think that what part of what you're seeing with the um, the countries that have ended up at the top is also um, they're countries that have recently revised also their use of force policies, uh, Nigeria in particular, because it does have a crime problem. And so there have been resources and efforts put in by the international community, especially uh, into, I think they just updated uh, their law enforcement legislation maybe two years ago. Uh, in fact, one of my colleagues was involved in providing support there. So uh, Indonesia also just updated its law enforcement legislation recently. So it's expected that you would see more of these international standards reflected um, but I think, you know, as I was saying, I think the the concern is still there. You know, you want a state, any state to have compliant, updated policies for their law enforcement. Um, it's great if they don't have as much of a as a much of a crime problem as some of these other states. But you still want those laws to be reflective of what basic human rights standards are. Yeah, it just sounds like they are antiquated. So if this foundational principles exist, and nobody has really gone back and looked at what is in the books. Yeah. They've never had an opportunity to um, to do that. So so this study might put some potentially some um, uh, some focus on sort of going back and revising it. Right. Um, so you have another chart here. So necessity grades by element. Uh, immediacy. Um, uh, threat and last resort. So, what what is this chart? Um, I, I see different cities here and and different uh, gradations for them. Um, I, well, you'd have to show oh. me where you're looking. So, so necessity actually has three components. Three components. Um, yeah. Has three components. So, uh, under necessity, uh, the states received uh, they received ten points. Uh, if deadly force could only be used when a subject was present in an immediate or imminent threat. Um, then they received another 10 points if deadly force was only used to a specific and heightened risk. And then they received another 10 points uh, if uh, non-deadly options, for example, if the policy required an escalation. So first you try this, then you try this, then you try this. Uh, so when those components were satisfied, then uh, then a state received the full points for necessity. Yeah. So when these policies are written, Claudia, are they really prescriptive in the sense that so suppose I say you can only use deadly force if if the risk is perceived to be high or immediate or something like that. But it sounds very qualitative, right? I mean, how, how do we determine if the situation warrants or does not warrant an action? Yeah, well, what's I think what's tricky about these kinds of policies and, you know, if you think of a, a lethal use of force policy is basically 
an employer's policy, right? Like we've all had jobs. Our employer tells us how we're supposed to act in our job and how we're not. Um, but if your job is law enforcement, the consequences of your employer policies are very significant. And so in these four, uh, these four basic standards, two of them are about influencing the police officer's discretion, which is necessity and proportionality. The other two are about creating mechanisms of accountability, legality and accountability. So essentially, it needs to be grounded in law. So that creates the strength of law. And then accountability is about what happens when an officer messes up, right? Actually uses force in a way that they weren't supposed to. The proportionality and the necessity are about giving the police officer instructions on discretion. And that is a very difficult thing. And in fact, there are many people who think that really what's important is accountability that you know the officer needs to know that there are consequences if they use their force in an inappropriate way and that's the only thing that matters uh, it is incredibly qualitative you are asking a police officer in that moment to ask themselves do i have any other options is the threat that i am facing worth potentially taking a human life but they're making those assessments anyway so they can either do it with guidance or without guidance uh, and they're acting on behalf of the state so there's really no other choice than to direct their discretion yeah. I, I'm I'm really biased about this. I think humans are very emotional. Um, and you know, situations like stock market, stock trading, for example, we have demonstrably shown that machines uh don't have you know that problem. Uh we can take the emotional uh stuff out of that. So is this an see... argument for giving weapons to AI so they can function <laughs> as law enforcement? <laughs> yeah, so was, no, no, not necessarily giving weapons, giving AI applications in decision making, I wonder, you know, because we, 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 we see humans are not very good decision makers. Uh, they're not using all the information that's coming to them, and it's a very short period of time, it's very condensed, and they have all this biased heuristics that they have to go through, and they make a, make a binary decision it appears a sort of a very inefficient process for a human. I think that's right. I mean, the flip side of it is that humans are also able to understand nuance uh, in a way that could actually be helpful in that situation, right? Exercise empathy and sympathy and all these things that we want a police officer to be doing in that moment. Um, but you're right. You know, I think that there are limitations here. Humans are not, they're, they're not, they're not, uh, robots, and we can't just say, you know, think A, B, and C, and then make your decision. But we have to direct the behavior as much as possible. Um, and I'll give you an example uh, in a separate study that uh, that I did with my students uh, on um, policing of protests. Uh, we did some research for a coalition of NGOs uh, that are, were working in 15 different countries, and we spoke to a set of police commissioners about what are the best tactics that protect human rights when they're policing protests. And we spoke to police commissioners in the UK, in Northern Ireland, in jurisdictions where they, because of past issues, had really decided that the, the protecting the right to protest was important. And one thing that we heard is that it made a big difference when they communicated to the police officers that their job was to enable free speech. So their job was to protect and enable free speech and that police officers then started acting very differently than when they thought that in a protest, their job was to control the crowd and to keep order. Uh, and so those kinds of, I think, shifts in management and in, uh, and in goal really make a difference, right? In the same way that we've seen in the military, for example, with soldiers. So I think sending police officers the right message does actually change the way that they behave. 
Yeah, just the wording, uh, just uh, just changing the objective function. Um, you could have different behavior coming up. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And so, you know, for example, one of the requirements of necessity is that the threat be particularized. So uh, sometimes uh, laws will say something very vague that if the officer thinks that there's a general threat, then they can use force. That's very different than you need to know that this officer might hurt you or somebody else. You know, that's a different message to be sending to a police officer. Yeah, I think that's, you know, um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but that's why I believe technology has a role to play here um, as sort of a decision guidance. So, for instance, you know, we, we do this in healthcare now. We give physicians, you know, risk scores of patients progressing to different disease states like type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and so on. So I can see a technology that that's not making a decision, that's not acting, but potentially giving some sort of a decision guidance, right? Uh, and then uh, the human could take that information and make the right judgment around that uh, because the technology will be able to use a lot of the information the human potentially is missing, right? Mm. So I wonder, um, I don't know if there have been any experiments or if it's even simulatable to see if it is actually useful. Yeah, I don't know, because I wonder if we are really at a point where we have that kind of technology. You're talking about split second decisions. So you would need something that, you know, gives the police officer an, uh, a perspective in a very quick second and then have the police officer decide what to do with that perspective. Um, and I think, you know, you said this at the beginning, these situations are emotional. Often the police officer is acting out of fear. Um, and so what we're trying to do is just create a bit of order and sense in the situation so that people don't die unnecessarily. Yeah. And obviously training, I mean, um, training is a big issue uh, as we introduce technologies into the police force. If they're not trained properly, <laughs> that doesn't go in. I mean, that has a negative effect ultimately, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's um, that's part of the question here, too, is what kind of training officers are receiving about when to use lethal force. And, you know, you know, there are all these terrible stories that came out of the United States, you know, last year and the year before uh, of uh, police officers that were using chokeholds and all sorts of other um, methods that could take a human life. And they were doing it in situations where it was inappropriate and not necessary. Yeah. Um the, the legal system, and I'm thinking about the United States more specifically, um, does it have outdated notions of how to do this? Um, have we really, are we at to, to a point that we need to really redesign the, the legal aspects of this? I do think, I mean, I'll, I'll speak for the United States first. There has been a tendency to decentralize and also a tendency to allow law enforcement departments to just sort of make these decisions on their own. Um, and, and I think that's a really big mistake. You know, we, we regulate in areas that have far less impact on communities. Uh, we regulate at the national level and we regulate closely. Uh, and up until now, uh, many police departments in the U.S. have just been allowed to kind of decide how they want to do things. And the courts have really only questioned them when they've really gone very far uh, in terms of racial bias or in terms of other violations of constitutional rights. Uh, and I think that one of the things that was very striking to us was just the global lack of transparency. Even getting the laws and policies to do this study took about six months. And this was 
with us having a pretty extensive alumni network, you know, that we relied on. Uh, we we did a lot of outreach to just get, you know, you would think that your own city's policy on when a police officer can shoot you would be something you could easily find online, you know, but it's not. Uh, and then there's also data about when the police are using force. So there are a lot of scholars right now that are working in a very tedious way in trying to collect even just information through newspapers and media on when the police are using force. Uh, and that's not something that a lot of governments uh, provide. So there's there's been no motivation to make it transparent. And so we really don't know if force is being used appropriately in a lot of countries around the world. Yeah, I mean, I was wondering, how, how does a judicial system handle it? So expose something bad happened, and then you, know, you go to the courts, how will the how will the judicial system determine what was known, what was appropriate? I mean, if none of those things are really transparent, how will the how will the legal system work? Well, and in some countries, it will never make it to the judicial system because the police officers will have a form of immunity. Uh, so in the U.S., the police officers have something called qualified immunity, which would make them immune uh, from even being held accountable, personally accountable in that way. Um, and so uh, what a lot of policies and laws actually do is they have it's not these cases don't go to the judicial system. They go to another process uh, that uh, a mechanism that that sort of reviews and has some power. Um, but there are some countries, uh, I think Germany, for example, where uh, a police officer can actually be prosecuted under criminal law. And so that that's just they just go through the regular process. And, and so that's one form of accountability. Yeah, I was just um, looking at sort of an expanded uh, chart in terms of cities. Uh, again, so you have the four attributes and the and the ratings on them. Uh, almost everybody is failing on legality. It looks like yes. Yeah. Um, the the do, do you mean at, in in the U.S. based study or in the global study? Uh, global study uh, again. The cities, you know, starting with New York and ending up in Riyadh. Yes. Um, yeah, so the country has legality score of five. <laughs> it's true because uh, the but because the legality requirement required a human rights compliant law. And so none of the states had a human rights compliant law. Many of them had a law, but it wasn't a compliant law that had the the three elements that were that were part of the basic standard. So human rights compliant law. Uh, so it looks like it's a universal problem. So going back to the United Nations, how would you how would you make this happen across the world? Yeah. I mean, look, there's there's a few narratives here. One narrative is that states are not taking their obligations seriously. Uh, and so they're not actually complying with these basic standards, right? I think that's one narrative. And there, there's a role for the UN. Um, there's a role for the UN to start prioritizing this. Uh, I think that, you know, and this is just an anecdotal opinion. I think this is an area in which states are very resistant to external opinions and influence because it's law enforcement. Uh, and so it's been difficult in the past. That's changed a lot in the last year. You know, you may be aware that um, in, I think it was last June, uh, the human, UN Human Rights Council called for an urgent debate uh, after many of the families of victims, including George Floyd, went to the UN Human Rights Council and said, please intervene because this is happening, not just in the US, but in many countries. The uh, Office of the High Commissioner issued a report. So there's been more, I think, effort to get states to be thinking about how law enforcement especially targets 
communities that are marginalized and, uh, you know, the African diaspora. Uh, so I think that is changing. Um, but I think the other narrative is just that it's uh, the people also have to push their own countries to be transparent about these things. Uh, you know, a citizen should know what the police are doing uh, and should know whether or not, you know, the their basic rights are being protected. Yeah, so the Human Rights Council, uh, so you so, see, so, um, the, the Human Rights uh, Council that you, you direct, that's at the University of Chicago, right? No, no, no. So this is at no. the United Nations. There's but a... The um, there's a subset of uh, countries, uh, I'm forgetting the number exactly, but it's something around 40 countries that are members of the UN Human Rights Council. And what they do is they uh, they report to the General Assembly uh, and they also interpret uh, human rights obligations. The United States was a member of this council up until the Trump administration, and then President Trump withdrew us from the council and now we've just joined again. Um, so it's a very powerful UN body uh, that focuses primarily on human rights and issues, resolutions, and commitments. Um, and then the, uh, the OHCHR is the is the part of the UN that uh, does human rights interpretation and investigation. Yeah, it's a it's a broader remit, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you uh, so war crimes and things like that come under that too, right? Um, so the well, war crimes are you, you. There are related war crimes issues that go before the UN Human Rights Council, um, but a lot of those decisions are made either in the Security Council or in the General Assembly. So there are a number of confusing UN bodies that uh, that focus on different elements that touch upon human rights. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's such a such a complex issue. Um, so. I mean, you're doing a lot of work here. So if you sort of look at longitudinally last. 20 years, uh, are things improving or are we sort of going down the <laughs> down, down the drain, so to speak? I get a I get a nagging feeling things are not improving. So so what is what is your sense? It's really hard to tell because the increase of data and an exchange of information also makes things look worse, you know? So so it's hard to say because, um, you know, now you on social media, you can have access to um, a police shooting in Argentina or in Brazil, and you can sort of know that these things are happening. That's a good thing, you know, that there is more transparency. It's a good thing that there are uh, civil society organizations that are building coalitions and realizing that there are actually patterns uh, across state lines. So those are good things. Now, whether or not things are objectively getting worse, I think that probably is more of a regional question. You know, I can say in the U.S. that the patterns of uh, law enforcement abuses and racial profiling, that's not new. You know, it's it's become more known, but it's definitely not new. Um, did it get worse under the Trump administration? You know, we have political dynamics just like any other country. So uh, I think I'll, I'll leave that to the sociologists. But um, but I do think there's a there's an information transparency that is kind of heightening some of these issues in ways that I think will prove to be useful. Yeah. So, so in conclusion, Claudia, if you were to make a couple of policy directives, and I'm thinking about the U.S. Uh, specifically, uh, we see high variation from New York to, you know, I, I thought I saw Indianapolis sort of at the bottom of the pile. Um, so very high variation among U.S. cities. So do you see we take sort of a model city and then fashion other cities around it. What would be the policy directives that you would use to sort of bring up the U.S. to more of an even even, uh, key, even uh, stage? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, so, you know, right now there's a piece of legislation called the Justice and Policing Act in the U.S. that tries to address a lot of these um, a lot of these issues and also just systematize uh, the basic standards and expectations. Uh, and that's and, and if that passes in Congress, it will be a very useful piece of legislation. Honestly, you know, the big things are about transparency and accountability. So there's no data, there's no information. The first thing that needs to happen is all police departments in the U.S. need to be required to report police shootings, you know, uh, uses of force in any way, results, deaths, all of that. And once we have that information, then I think it will also become much more clear where the problem areas are. Uh, but in relation to the study that we did, there's absolutely no question that every police department in the world really should meet these really basic standards, you know, have a law, <laughs> have some mechanism of accountability that holds police officers responsible when they violate their duties uh, and require a police officer to use their discretion in a way that is constrained and respects human life and dignity. That's essentially what the standards require. Yeah. I want to ask you, um, you have a podcast as well. Um, is, is that a recent one or what's the name of it? Yeah, so uh, a colleague of mine, Tom Ginsburg, uh, who works on human rights and does a comparative constitutional uh, work as well, uh, and I talked uh, for a while about the idea of starting a podcast uh, to discuss debates around rights. So the podcast is called Entitled, uh, and it's about why rights matter and what's the matter with rights. Uh, we've had our first season, uh, and we have discussed, actually, we had an episode on the right to bear arms uh, and how that right looks internationally. Uh, we did uh, an episode on, uh, on whether or not all of the women of Afghanistan should have refugee status. Uh, so we've spoken to, you know, academics and uh, UN leaders and artists uh, just trying to think through debates around rights because, you know, it's a very polarized moment globally, you know, in which people are on opposite sides of an issue and uh, and they all think they're right, you know. And so um, so these kinds of conversations need to be had. And we're actually working on our second season right now on the right to equality. Uh, so we'll be discussing uh, issues of equality, economic equality, global equality, uh, populism, you know, all of these really interesting issues. Uh, and and that should be coming out in a couple of months. So it's available in all, all uh, regular podcast platforms? Yeah, you can, you can find it on Apple Podcasts. You can find it on Spotify. Uh, it's called Entitled Podcast. Uh, it's also on Twitter. Uh, and uh, and we've heard actually from a lot of educators that they've started using it in their courses uh, on international issues and human rights uh, because uh, the students have found it really, really interesting to think through some of the issues. We try to not settle debates, but actually just prompt questions. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Claudia. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Of course. Thank you so much for the invitation. Sure. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.